Good morning, church. My name is Ian, and uh, I have the joy of leading us in our prayer of illumination this morning in relation to our scriptures and their uh, preaching from Roy, which will follow. The uh, second scripture will be uh, read from Psalm chapter 13. So let's bow our heads in prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, you declared earlier in our service today through your prophet Isaiah that you have the names of your people engraved on the palms of your hands. As we hear your word preached this morning, may we gaze on those palms and grow anew in our knowledge of the depth of your love and compassion for each of your children. May we also gaze upon the open palms of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and see the marks of those nails that pinned him to the cross. As we see those marks, may we be reminded that he took upon himself the punishment for sin that was rightfully ours, so that we could receive your amazing gift of eternal life and light. You also declared through Isaiah, to those who are in darkness, be free. And you promised, you will no longer hunger or thirst. I will lead you. I will guide you. So our prayer this morning, as we hear your word preached by Roy, is that you would please be our light. Please be our food and drink. Please be our guide. And as we listen to your word, may our hearts fully rejoice in you. May we sing for joy at your words of comfort and salvation. And may we trust more deeply in your steadfast love for us. May we leave this place this morning with truly worshipful and thankful hearts that seek to serve you and you alone throughout the coming week and for all eternity. Amen. So open your Bibles, if you have one, uh, to Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. So, until the middle of last year, I was at Bible college. And most mornings, I used to get on the train at Murdoch Station, and it would like take me to my destination in Leadable. But since I started working here at church, now most mornings, I drive my car along the freeway from South Street to Canning Highway, and then along Canning Highway to get here to church. So those two commutes, they're quite different, aren't they? On the train, I was just along for the ride. But driving my car, I've got to intentionally steer it along a route and navigate traffic and make decisions about where and when to turn. And I suggest to you this morning that 
praying a psalm of lament like Psalm 13, it's much more like riding a train than it is like driving your car. Now, this morning, we're going to climb on board the Psalm 13 train, and we're going to let the psalmist take us to our destination. I'm going to act as a humble tour guide on board the train with you, pointing out the various stops along the way. And along the route of this psalm, what we'll observe is an incredible transition from anxiety to assurance, from fear to faith, and from pain to praise. This this movement, it makes up the reality and the riddle of the lament. Who is this one who accuses and adores God in the same breath? How is it possible to combine such contradictions in one soul. Now, we might think that lament is the opposite of praise or thanksgiving, but we'd be wrong. Rather, lament is a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness, grief, remorse, and disappointment. And this language of being led is crucial. As we'll see, the movement of lament psalms is a liturgical movement. So that means it follows a pattern which suits worship. So just like Marco has led us through the elements of worship at church this morning, so to the psalmist, which is David in this instance, he leads and directs us as we approach God. And the lament psalms do have elements which we move through. They normally begin with an address to God before moving into complaint, then request, and concluding with a statement of trust. So do you get that? The pattern is address, complaint, request, statement of trust. Today we're going to walk through the four elements of Psalm 13 and comment on each. So first up is the address. Now, it is kind of tempting just to skip over the address because it seems so mundane. And also, in Psalm 13, it's kind of collapsed into the next element, the complaint, with the fourfold, how long, O Lord, running until the end of verse 2. There doesn't seem to be a lot to say here, but the fact that the psalmist addresses God at all demonstrates that lament is not an act of doubt, but of faith. As I said, to lament is not the opposite of thanks or praise. Lament is actually what faith looks like in difficult circumstances. And in my experience, this this first step of addressing a lament towards God, it's often the hardest step. When I'm really hurting, my biggest temptation is to hunker down and go mute. I become a kind of practical atheist. God might be in heaven but he's got nothing to do with my current situation, and I don't want to talk to him right now. The address is full of urgency, and it even has a sense of summoning God. The address can border on the irreverent as the psalmist runs to God with all his filters down. How long, Lord? There's no sense of approaching formally, but rather hastily and insistently like a child running to their parent. So it's a bit like an email you might get that skips the greeting and then just launches straight into 
I want you to do X right now. Now, how I react to an email like that, it depends a lot on who sent it, right? If it's from my mum, I probably wouldn't even notice the lack of greeting. But from anyone else, it would be rude. So the fact that David can approach God like this, it demonstrates the depth of relationship and the expectation that's kind of intrinsic to that way of approaching. Clearly, there are deep, familial, covenantal ties between David and God. There's also a sense of contradiction in the anxious address, as David runs to the all-powerful God who has control over his current messy circumstances. David's address reaches out to God in faith and expresses trust in the relationship which his present experience denies. The address expresses trust in the relationship which present experience denies. The next stop on the train ride of Psalm 13 is the complaint, consisting of four heart-rending questions in verses 1 to 2. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? These are troubling questions. To be forgotten by God is a terrifying prospect. What would it mean to inhabit a world such as ours, where suffering is everywhere, completely devoid of the attention of God? Things would be truly hopeless. That would be the very definition of a God-forsaken life. But we must recognize that one of the unique aspects of the laments is that they present theology kind of from below. Laments represent divinely inspired truth from the human perspective as we speak to God. So laments are absolutely true, but not like maths or algebra is true. They are true like poetry is true. True according to feelings, not necessarily according to fact. They are a true reflection of a human encounter with the divine. So consider the prophecy of Isaiah we heard before. Isaiah 49, 14 to 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. God's response, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, I'm sure you all know someone with the name of their partner tattooed somewhere. If they're really classy, it'll be like right here along their neck. And you have to wonder, what is the purpose of a tattoo like that? It's not as if one can forget who they're married to. But it's not a reminder in the normal way of thinking about a reminder. What it is, is a demonstration of commitment. It's a promise to never forget. But just for argument's sake, say this upcoming Valentine's Day, Matt went and got himself a big neck tattoo of Mandy's name. Does that guarantee Mandy will never feel forgotten again? Of course it doesn't. No, it is not that God has forgotten David, but just that David feels forgotten. 
God's care is like the tattoo, a permanent pledge to never forget. God's care is like the sun. It is always there, but at times it's obscured by the clouds and out of view. So verse 3 even hints at this, as the psalmist asks for light by which to see. This suggests that his current experience of feeling forgotten, it's not because God's not present, but simply because David cannot see him right now. However, we must acknowledge that there is a sense in verse 1 that God is active in hiding himself from God. That God is active in hiding himself from David. How long will you hide your face from me? And yet, there is no suggestion in Psalm 13 that David is under God's judgment for a particular sin. In fact, with a few notable exceptions, like Psalm 38 and and Psalm 51, in the vast majority of the individual laments, sin and suffering are not directly connected. In lament psalms like this, rarely is the need for contrition and confession on view. But much more often, what is emphasized is the need to approach God, speaking truthfully about the messy circumstances of life. David leads us in complaint and petition much more than he leads us in confession or contrition. So thinking liturgically, confession should be practiced like routinely as part of our regular pattern of worship, regardless of the circumstances of our lives. We confess every Sunday near the start of the service as we, so to speak, wipe our feet at the door. Because we are chronic, habitual sinners in all circumstances, we have a chronic, ongoing need of confession and absolution. But lamentation is rarely the time for this. When we lament, we rush to God with urgent, acute needs, dirty feet and all, asking him to heal our wounds, more so than we ask him to forgive us our sins. Well, if God's actively hiding himself is the first source of suffering, verse 2 introduces a second source, David himself. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? and day after day have sorrow in my heart. How true is it that much of our suffering it bubbles up from within us? I know my own self-loathing, my own contempt for myself, and my own self-accusatory thoughts. Well, they can be a more consistent source of pain to me than anything going on externally. Although, I think it is true to say that ordinarily, the self is not the root cause of pain for us. More often, the dynamic is that being sinned against provides the fuel for our rebellious hearts to turn away from God in mistrust. This, in turn, creates like bent and and twisted feedback loops inside of us that revisit us with sorrow day after day, sometimes year after year. So, for example, the cruel comments of kids at my school over 20 years ago as I struggled as an overweight teenager have somehow like morphed and mutated into my own perverted brand of self-condemnation, accusing me of carrying too much body fat long after the offending tissues have vacated. But this should be a clue that fat cells were never the problem, but something else deep within me that needs purging. 
The final complaint of Psalm 13, the last line of verse 2, reveals that a third party is involved too, David's enemies. So this interplay between three major characters, God, the psalmist himself, and enemies, it's a common one in the laments, and it holds together three corresponding realms of experience which we modern people tend to separate out. The psychological self, the sociological enemies, and the theological God. But for David, every experience of the self or of the other is also an experience of God. David knows that ultimately, God is the one in control of all things, and that such is his relationship with God that nothing is outside the bounds of expression towards God. So even while he complains of God's absence in verse 1, he addresses his complaints and subsequent requests to Yahweh my God in verse 3. Regardless of the exact connection between the self, the enemies, and God himself, it is right to see God as the primary agent to effect change, and it is right to freely express difficult human emotions in the context of the divine human relationship. Okay, the next stop on the lament train is the third element, the request. In verse 3, the psalmist wants answers to his questions as well as God to look on him and reverse the turning away of verse 1. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. David knows that God is the source of light he needs to escape the darkness of his pain. He wants God to turn the lights back on and restore his ability to see his way through. So we touched on this before, that God's care is like the sun it's ever-present, but sometimes obscured. And indeed, we should note here that sometimes God's care is his obscuring himself from us as we learn to walk in faith. I'm going to say this again because it's a bit counterintuitive. Sometimes the way God will care for us is by obscuring himself from us as we learn to walk in faith. So think about how we care for little children. At the age of three or four, they might sleep with a nightlight in their room. As they mature, we might take the nightlight away, but leave the bathroom light on down the hall. As they mature further still, we might begin to close the door more and more. Now, if the child is 22 years old and we're still doing this, we have a major problem. So what maturity looks like is learning to trust God in the dark learning to trust him when we can't see him, even as we ask that he might reveal himself again. As the old hymn goes, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Now, notice David's fear of being overcome by death in verses 3 and 4. His perceived proximity to death suggests that he feels as if his experience of suffering may never end. I know when I'm in a miserable emotional state, there is a sense in which things will never get better, that my experience is like that of physical death, in that it is permanent and without hope. This is directly connected to maturity as well. 
as the inability to see outside of the immediate is strongly connected to childhood. For a little kid, a week's a long time, a month basically an eternity. But as we mature, we learn the rhythm of weeks, months, and even years. Now, this is not to suggest that the sufferer is immature, but just a recognition that when God removes his light, there can be a regression which occurs. A Christian in this state can be deeply distressed and beyond all natural consolation. He or she must be dealt with gently and tenderly as one would deal with a child. Again, the need of the lamenting soul is to come to God truthfully, have their complaint heard, ask for help, and express trust. Now, it's worth noting here that the language of individual laments, it's often kind of stereotypical and cliched. The imagery moves back and forth between literal expression and imaginative power. The laments speak in extremes. The language is all-embracing, not limiting. Situations are dire. Death is near. Enemies are bestial. Everything's happening up close and personal in the now. The effect is that of overwhelming urgency and a larger-than-life experience. Just like in the Proverbs, evil, trouble, and calamity, they're realized and personified. So death and enemies can legitimately be considered as metaphorical imagery for threat more generally. Laments are appropriate for people who cry out to God in all kinds of troubling situations. We should think of them less as a mirror reflecting the psalmist's experience and more of a framework to interpret our own experience. Now, this approach might be a little foreign to us as we seek to always interpret Scripture within its original historical setting, right? But in the Psalms, we rarely have this setting, and this is deliberate. The laments intentionally invite us to strongly identify with the author. The questions we should ask ourselves as we approach the laments are not what was wrong with the psalmist or who were his enemies, but what is wrong with us? Who or what are our enemies? We should think less biographically and more liturgically. How is the psalmist leading us, directing us to approach God as we stumble through dark days? How is he taking us by the hand and orientating us rightly before God? Finally, having worked through the address, the complaint, and the request, we come to the last element, the destination of the train ride, the statement of trust. Verse 5 begins, but, and the psalm pivots, turning from the heart-rending questions of the complaint and the desperate petitions of the request to the emphatic statements of trust in God's love in verse 5 and goodness in verse 6. Nothing here suggests a change in circumstances. Nothing here suggests the lights have been turned back on or the enemies have been defeated. And yet the psalmist leads us in rejoicing in the Lord's salvation in verse 5 and praising him in verse 6. The statement of trust is, is almost always the conclusion to the lament. And if we felt the tension of contradiction before, well, here the seeming contradiction arrives at its climax. 
This is the point where a preacher will often note the movement of lament from pain to praise and enjoin his listeners to just make a choice, trust and praise God along with the psalmist. But I want to make it crystal clear that the movement of the psalm from address through complaint, request and statement of trust, it does not mean we must begin at one end with one set of emotions and come out the the other end with another set. We need not see an obligation to move from feeling forgotten or miserable to feeling trusting or joyous. We, We need not see a change of mood in the psalmist which we need to emulate or copy. The psalmist leads us not emotionally, but liturgically. He is the train driver, not us. The psalmist directs us in how to approach God as we are orientated rightly, directing our worship in all the multifaceted complexity of the Christian life as we encounter the divine. Now, it may well be that as we are led liturgically, we're also led emotionally. It may well be that as we ride this lament train, our experience of the various stops carries us into a different emotional state. But it's far from guaranteed. Our bittersweet existence, our crumbling bodies, our schizophrenic hearts guarantee that it's not always so clean. It's often a heady mixture of joy and despair, triumph and tragedy, pain and gain. Because Christians are simultaneously the anxious, fearful, dying people who cannot find God where we want him to be, and we are the elect with a second history, a salvation history, a life hid with Christ in God. You see, the agony and the ecstasy, they belong together. They cannot and they should not be extricated from one another. Psalm 13 reminds us that there is no following Jesus without bearing a cross. It reminds us that we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. It reminds us that we only share in Christ's glory if we share in his sufferings. It reminds us that God works all things for the good of those who love him, both the triumphant and the terrible. It reminds us that we are called to the cross-shaped, cruciform life of the New Testament. And most importantly, Psalm 13 reminds us that the God who is the transcendent Father of lights does not hide his face from us, but has shown it to us in Jesus. It reminds us of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was a man of suffering, acquainted with grief, who wept with sorrow in his heart, who wrestled with his thoughts at Gethsemane, whose enemies hounded him to a brutal death on the cross, where he felt forsaken by God, but all along said to his father, may your will be done. I trust in your unfailing love. In Psalm 13, we lament into empty spaces. How long, O Lord? But we also say in faith, I trust in your unfailing love. I trust in facts, 
not in feelings. We say, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? But we also say, my heart rejoices in your salvation. As the cross of Christ gives us absolute certainty that we have been saved from sin's penalty, we are being saved from sin's power, and we will be saved from sin's very presence. So take heart. If you are trusting in Jesus, this is as bad as it gets, as dark as it will ever be, and the dawn is breaking. Amen.